Have you ever wanted to see for yourself what the Bible has to say? Well, you've come to the right place. Join me, Pastor Tom Marsis, and Vicar Jason Com, as we explore the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, provide you some landmarks and guideposts along the way. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures, episode 48, Clinging to the Truth. My name is Pastor Tom Marsis, Senior Pastor at Zion Lutheran Church. And I'm Vicar Jason Kahn. And I'm glad that you're with us today as we uh, continue our trek through the Scriptures. This week, we're finishing up the book of Colossians, chapters 3 and 4, read the entire First and Second Thessalonians, and begin a look at First Timothy's chapters 1 to 4. Um, as we continue our look at uh, Paul's letters, it's always very interesting how personal and yet how very reaching um, what Paul has to say. And so it's interesting to realize the context, and let's face it, that's something we've talked about over and over again as we've gone through the trek through the Scriptures. But as we continue our look at the various epistle letters, the context, the setting that Paul is writing to, does he know them? Did he start the church? What's going on in that city again or region again and again becomes very important. So today we want to wrap up Colossians. And here at the end of Colossians, Paul is really talking about putting on the new self. And that uh, has a rather interesting connotation to it, the new self in the society that we live in today, of course, uh, all these self-help books, um, make yourself more than you are or become the real you, uh, all those kind of things we find in the books that society is doing. So we need to make sure that as we have this whole concept of new self, what does that mean? It's not about recreating ourselves, but uh, truly who are we and what are we in Christ Jesus? Right, Jesus is the one who recreates ourselves. And in fact, when he's talking about putting on the new self, this is not the only way he's talked about this before. He uses this metaphor all throughout his epistles. And he's simply pointing people to Jesus. He's calling them to just grasp what has already been done for them, following Jesus' example, because the truth of their reality is that their old sinful selves, they are dead in Christ, and their new forgiven selves are alive in Christ. That's just a fact of who they are. And now that doesn't mean that they get it perfectly all the time. We have talked about in previous episodes that the Christian life still is filled with struggle and sin and repentance and forgiveness, this daily cycle of dying to self and rising again in Christ. But that's the beauty of this gift. It's every day. It's an everyday gift. And it just is a fact of our lives as Christians that we are forgiven in Christ. And Clearly, what Paul is putting that puts it all together, again, we look to Christ, but it's Christ's love. It's this love of Christ. And let's face it, as we've gone through the epistles, we've heard Paul use that term again and again and again. We've talked about how the Greek has three different types of words that describe different aspects of love. But it's Christ's love that binds it all together. It brings it together, makes us who we are, what we are. And Paul is calling us as Christians, and especially here, of course, the Christians and Colossae, to live that life as we have been called. And so uh, it's it's rather interesting that we should be reminded again and again uh, by Paul. And it, it's funny how that's the, one of his 
uh, hobby horses, so to speak. He's constantly doing that. And uh, as we finish up the book of Colossians, uh, you can tell Jason kind of put together the thing. Fun fact, you know, <laughs> fun fact. Um, Colossians and Philemon were probably delivered together. Uh, it's rather interesting in our mail today. Uh, we don't get much uh, physical mail anymore. But as a kid, I remember, oh, got a letter. And boy, if you got two letters at the same time, that was uh, uh, just amazing. Uh, but so it's rather interesting to realize that these two letters written by Paul were probably delivered together. And so uh, the listed companions match up. Uh, we don't know absolutely for a fact, but it, it very much appears that uh, the people that brought the letters were the same. They're, you know, doing that. So uh, as you read them, while they're not having the same message, obviously Philemon was written for a very much different reason than Colossians to know that uh, Paul was dealing with both issues, both writings, about the same time as they were delivered. Uh, as we move on then, uh, we move on to Thessalonica. This is in the northern region of Greece. Uh, it is so we we uh, hear the word Thessalonians. Uh, that's the people that live in there. But the, the town, the city itself is Thessalonica. It's in the northern portion of modern day Greek, uh, Greece. And uh, so uh, Paul's been there. Uh, it's one of one of his journeys. He was there, and it's one of the earliest uh, examples of Paul writing to the Gentiles. So it's also one of those things that we want to clue in on it. So he's not writing to a Jewish audience. He knows he's writing to a Gentile audience. So what kind of words does he use? What uh, examples does he use? How does he relate that to them? And uh, occurs shortly after Acts chapter seventeen. We read Acts earlier in our trek through the scriptures. So it's a uh, Acts 17. It's always kind of interesting to have a timeline where you compare the epistle letters, where they fall in the book of Acts as the as you as you go through there. And so since these are people that Paul knew, it's rather interesting how he talks about their faith. Yeah. So Paul's concerned with talking about three main points in First Thessalonians. That's sanctification, eschatology, which we've talked before is end time stuff, and also their identity in Christ. And so turning to chapter four, you'll see that Paul is talking about the sanctified life, a life powered and fueled by the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting in Thessalonians compared to other epistles is that he's actually very, very proud of these people and their example of faith that they have. And so Paul doesn't have any specific corrections to make. You know, if you think back to the Corinthians, he had to make all sorts of specific corrections on all kinds of specific sins, but he doesn't give that sort of instruction here. He simply points them straight to Jesus and his example, the fulfillment of the entire law. And it's interesting because he is talking to a Gentile audience. They wouldn't have been as familiar with the law as the Jews would have been. Um, but he still just points them directly to Jesus as that total complete fulfillment of God's law for them. And so the kind of love that he's getting at that the Thessalonians are exemplifying is a kind of God taught love. It's spontaneous love. It's this natural effect of hearing the good news that Jesus came to earth, suffered for us and was risen again to raise us to eternal life forever. It's just a natural effect of the gospel. God's word actually does something to people. It changes them. It affects the way that they live and it equips them to live a holier, better life. And now we don't believe that um, this holy, better life gets us any closer to heaven, 
but it's actually just the effect of heaven coming to us through Christ. That's what the sanctified life's all about. Well, in, in this whole section here, it was very, very interesting how you mentioned, well, they wouldn't have been acquainted with the written law. Uh, and I think that's one of the things to remember, the written law, like the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from uh, the mountain or the, the law as we find it written in the Old Testament in various sections. However, as we all know, uh, or as we should know, is that, uh, you know, our conscience, the law that is written on the hearts of all men, whether they know the scriptures or not, is there. And so we can choose to ignore that. Uh, and many non-believers, non-Christians will choose to ignore it. That doesn't mean the law is still not written on their heart. doesn't mean that they were not born with a conscience related to that. Uh, and yet, so even if they didn't have the full understanding of the written law, uh, the, the law was written on their heart, and the law would convict them nevertheless in, in their actions. And this is one of those sections where uh, we're reminded the Christian does what they do simply, because that's who they are. Uh, they don't do it to become a Christian. We live the life that we live. We do the good works that we do simply because that's who we are. Uh, a lot of those outside the church will think, uh, oh, the church is just doing that to be more Christian, whatever that means, uh, or to be more churchy if they, if they want to do that. But instead of seeing it that the church reaches out and helps the poor, helps the needy, helps the hungry, all those things, not to earn more favor with God, not to make them more Christian-like, but simply because that's who they are. And that's really what Paul's talking about here, that spontaneousness, as uh, Vicar mentioned just a few moments ago. It's just simply who and what we are. And, uh, and the realization of that... Um, not doing it for reasons of earning or buying, getting more favor, uh, but realizing it's that spontaneous. That becomes very critical to what Paul says and really uh, maturing understanding for us as Christians. And now that the last section there of uh, chapter four, after we talked about this sanctified life or the life of the believer, is one of those big churchy words we use, uh, eschatology. Um, again, not necessarily a word you're going to necessarily remember, but it's a, uh, a word nevertheless that is used in the church to describe um, the end times. And so if you can't remember eschatology, that's fine. But remember the end times. That's what we're really talking about here. And uh, realizing that we don't rush Christ or hold Christ off by what we do or don't do. I mean, he knows the exact time. It's when, the time and place of his choosing. Uh, his timing and not our timing. And we don't impact that by how good we are or how bad we are or how good the world is or how bad the world is. I mean, he knows and has set aside the time and hour that, that it is. And we simply live out the life of hope and readiness that we know he will return and he will return in his time and place and choosing. And so to really understand that uh, the impact of when that is, is his, not ours. And if you see throughout history, there have been several people who have tried to like pour through the scriptures and actually make an educated guess on when exactly it is that Jesus will return. And everyone has been wrong so far. And that's because only God knows there's an appointed time and we can't know it. And if we try and look ahead and guess when that is, we sort of miss out on living the Christian life as we're called to live it. So it's really, it's not the way that we live that affects the Lord's coming, but it's that his coming should affect our living. Not that we're like trying to pinpoint the exact day, but that we live every day with hope 
that he will return and with readiness that he will return on that last day. So the Christian life is a life filled with hope in what God will do and readiness for him to come back. Now, some of you that are a little older, you know, grew up in the 60s or 70s, like I did. Uh, in the 70s, you'll remember there was this book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and uh, how that was predicting and, you know, certain things in scriptures. This was referencing Russia, and this was referencing Israel, and this was, uh, again, uh, I, Vicar referred to it as educated guest. I would simply refer to it as a guest, not educated, just a guest, and clearly wrong. But The Late Great Planet Earth, it might be a book that you can relate to. I remember uh, in the 70s reading The Late Great Planet Earth, not not because I believed it, but, you know, it's, it was just like one of the things of the time. And by this is a book, you got to read it, you know, and, and uh, clearly uh, trying to take scripture and bend it to what he thought was going to happen, not what God was planning on and happening. And when we're talking about the end times, we just need to remember we're living in the end times since Christ has returned to heaven to judge the living and the dead, uh, you know, when he got, went back into heaven to prepare that place for us, we're living in the end times. We don't know when the time will end, but we're living in the end times. And then moving on to chapter five uh, in First Thessalonians, uh, the children of light, we belong to the light, light in Christ. It's our identity. Uh, and again, that kind of circles around to what Paul is always talking about, our identity, who we are, what we are in Christ Jesus. And so... Um, it's whether this is where we read the whole counsel of God. It's so easy to pick out a passage here or pick out a passage there and then use the passage that we cherry pick to somehow uh, make up our picture of who and what God is instead of the whole counsel of, of the word. One of the reasons why, as a church, we like to use one of the ancient creeds, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, Sunday after Sunday. Why? It reminds us of who God is and the full counsel of God, not just focusing in on the Spirit or Christ as the Redeemer. And so, uh, so often, our focus is so much on Jesus, clearly, that we downplay or look away from the fact that He is the Creator. Yeah, and part of that is that then he is making us new, that we're better creatures through the power of the Spirit. I mean, Lutherans often get accused of ignoring the power of the Spirit. You know, we talk about Jesus so much that we ignore what and who the Spirit is. Uh, and clearly, when you read scriptures, it's the whole council. And that's why it's important to realize and focus in on the full nature of God as creator, as sanctifier, as uh, uh, the redeemer. we All those aspects, not just one, but all of them. And God hasn't stopped creating things from the very beginning. You know, he didn't just make everything in six days and just kind of set the world on a timer and just let it run and is just sort of watching to see how everything plays out. No, God is constantly creating even today. And he's constantly making us into new, better creatures through the Holy Spirit. He's constantly working in our lives to change us and to transform us. And to get into um, the Greek just a little bit, in chapter 5, verse 23, that's one of the only places in the New Testament that actually makes a distinction between the human spirit and the human soul. And so we're not going to try and explain that because that would be a long, complicated conversation. Um, but what we can take away from this is that God is looking to transform the entire human being, inner, outer, every part of us 
into creatures of holiness, into creatures that are set apart for his purposes. So he's looking to renew us completely inside and out to make us completely new creations in Christ. And he never stops creating in us. And this is why we, we always come back to church to be reminded of this message that God doesn't just redeem us, but he gives us strength. He gives us hope. He gives us more faith and gives us the power to actually follow his law, not in order that we might be saved, but we're just living out of the life that's already been given to us. Well, as we move on to Second Thessalonians, uh, remember that word we talked about, end times, eschatology. And what's very interesting, I had a professor at uh, the seminary, his name was Robert Herber. He happened to be the editor of the Lutheran Study Bible uh, that the we had with the NIV back in the day. But he talked about this, that the Thessalonians, ah, Christ is coming again, uh, you know? And uh, so they, he always said, yep, they got out their rocking chairs, sat on the front porch, rocked back and forth and said, okay, whenever you're ready, God, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm ready. And what they did was they stopped living. They stopped, uh, they was, okay, he's coming, so I'm just ready, I'm here. Uh, and so they stopped living. And so Paul writes Second Thessalonians to correct that misperception and to what they're supposed to be doing. We, I mean, we're called to live the life of faith. I mean, we've talked about this transforming of who and what we are. And the Thessalonians said, okay, I'm done, I'm here, I'm ready. God, okay, you're coming. And uh, he said, he always talked about them in their rocking chairs, just waiting not doing anything, just rocking back and forth, um, which of course gives us a very vivid picture of what was going on. Obviously, they didn't have a rocking chair on their front porch. They didn't have a front porch. But nevertheless, uh, Paul writes to correct this misperception that uh, we're just sitting here waiting. Yeah, they thought that the last day was already upon them and that everything was coming to an end now. And Paul tries to snap them out of it and says, well, actually, no, there's, there's more that's going to happen in this life first. There's more that's going to happen in the world. And one of the things that was going on was that persecution was becoming more common for the Thessalonians. Paul doesn't really bring up the fact that they were persecuted in his first epistle, but he does in their second epistle. And so we're not entirely sure of the details here, um, but we can confirm that they were undergoing more oppression for their faith um, than they were before. But Paul does assure them at the beginning of chapter one that Christ will return someday and he will bring proper justice for the wicked, for the evildoers when he does. And so this kind of points back to what we've learned in the prophets, that when God acts on this last day, he's going to completely wipe out the wicked. They will be no more. And now we understand this to mean that when Christ comes back, there's going to be actual judgment and people will uh, be punished for their, their lawless deeds and if they are unbelievers, and everyone will see that happen. Well, that really leads into what we see here happening next, and that's the man of lawlessness. Uh, and we would say man of lawlessness in quotation marks, uh, because that person must first come and claim that they're God. And it's rather interesting in the world around us. We can see a lot of that, I think. Um, and uh, the name for that, and I'm sure most of you would have heard this before, is the Antichrist. So this isn't actually a word that 
comes up in the text of Second Thessalonians. The Antichrist is uh, sort of a term that we understand this to mean. And we do learn a little bit about this figure, this man of lawlessness that Paul talks about. We know that he is an agent of Satan and that his goal is to draw people into falsehood, to lead people away from God, away from the truth. And so he warns the Thessalonians that there is a man who will appear and set himself up to be God first and to draw them away. Now, here's the problem. Who exactly is that? There's been some different the terms as to who that may be. I mean, obviously, Luther had ideas of the, who that might be. Perhaps maybe it was the Pope. There's other issues related to that. But remembering that as this person comes into it, the destructive nature of claiming to be God and how that impacts uh, the life and faith of people around it, uh, leading them down false paths. And let's face it, there's lots of people that do that. And in the 70s and 80s, one of the things that that was really impacting the life of faith is every one of us is a God, kind of, I'm a God, you're a God, and, you know, and my definition might not fit your definition. I mean, so th there's been many examples of this down, but through all of it, whoever, whatever, uh, the, the answer to whether someone is or isn't comes to the Word. And Thanks be to God. That's what we've been doing this year, right? We've been going from uh, Genesis all the way to Revelation. We've been reading it, some more complicated than others. But ultimately, God works in and through his word. And we are always talking about word and sacrament, word and sacrament. But uh, clearly, the word is that opportunity we have to dive into the word, the spirit speaking to us. And that's what really gives us the clear defense to anybody who claims falsely, false doctrine, or about the church as well. And through all of this, um, the struggles that Paul is describing here, he reminds us again, while we may at times be unfaithful, may, while the world around us may at times be unfaithful, God is always faithful. And that's that running theme we see uh, going in both of First and Second Thessalonians, God is faithful and will accomplish it. And he guards and protects us from all these things that are going on around us. And one of the ways he guards and protects us is the more we're in his word, the more the word is a part of who and what we are, the more the word drives and guards us. That gives us the opportunity here to be able to overcome and have that uh, armor of faith against what's going on around us. All right, so this leads us into 1 Timothy. We're kind of jumping all over Paul's lifespan today because the Thessalonians, the letters to the Thessalonians were written pretty early on in his ministry of writing epistles to people. Uh, but now when we get to 1 Timothy, we see that we're approaching the end of Paul's ministry and he's actually passing off the baton to someone else to take his place. And so... He addresses a letter to Timothy to provide some further instruction to him. And we know that Timothy was a faithful companion to Paul throughout his missionary days. And so Paul is interested in passing down his mission, his life's work to Timothy. And so today we understand this epistle to be a model for what pastors are to teach and follow and how the church is to be run in the present day. Well, and, and really what we see here is Paul mentoring a, a young new pastor. In some ways, um, it's the example of why we have men at the seminary spend a year out on vicarage uh, working with a more experienced pastor, hopefully one that at least has a little idea what he's doing, um, and uh, that would be mentoring him. Obviously, uh, Timothy has been trained by Paul in 
the doctrine and teachings of the church. I mean, he was, it also talks about having been raised in that in his family. Uh, and so for the young pastor who's on vicarage and who's out, the, the mentor, we often uh, refer to that uh, person as their supervisor, other terms as well. But really, the word that probably best fits what it's supposed to be is mentor. Uh, examples of what it is to do ministry, whether it's preaching, teaching, visitation, all kinds of things like that. And so it it's very important to understand what the role is and what the purpose is. So Paul includes a list of helpful instructions and encouragement for Timothy to follow. And it's pretty neatly organized too. Basically, every chapter sort of covers a different topic that he wants to talk about. And in the first chapter, we've discussed this a little bit already, but he charges Timothy to cling to the truth of the gospel and to properly preach both the law and the gospel. You can't just have one. You can't leave either one out, but you need law and gospel together to actually do the full, complete work of Christ with people. And that's really one of the difficult things for any preacher is uh, the balance or using both law and gospel. I, I uh, at times, will listen to sermons that are on television or nowadays on the Internet. used to say the radio, but the Internet. And uh, if you listen to non-Lutheran preaching, a lot of times it's either all law or it's all gospel. And uh, the, the, you miss the sweetness of the gospel without the law. And if it's only law, you, you, you hear only of death and destruction and separation instead of what's coming in the presence of God. Think of it this way. I mean, if I preach a sermon this week, it's all about uh, death and destruction and sin and how awful we are and whatever, and end right there. Think, well, I'll just get them next week because I'll you know, I have the gospel next week. And that person dies in between. I mean, they were left with the uh, pain and suffering of, I'm never going to make it. I can't make it. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm awful. Um, and yet, on the other hand, if you don't have the law and you simply go with the gospel, it's uh, really basically a so what? Uh, think about it this way. Uh, someone doesn't, you know, is trying to uh, evangelize with you, trying to get you the gospel, and the first thing out of the mouth is, Jesus loves you. And uh, this person's like, you know, shakes their head and goes, really? So what? I mean, my dog loves me. Uh, what difference does that make? Well, the difference is found in the law. Without the law, the, the love of Christ uh, is seen as meaningless. It's not meaningless, but it's seen as meaningless. And so that's where the two go hand in hand. And for the preacher, uh, for the preacher who's doing the very best that they can in preaching and teaching, it's difficult because uh, if you're not looking closely, you might think, well, I, you know, I just kind of, you know, soft pedal a little on the gospel, and I'll—I mean, on the the law, and I'll hit them later with the gospel. And yet, uh, maybe it was really harsh, you know, and didn't do it. So, do you have the right tone of what it's saying? Do you have the purpose for the law? And that all comes together then, ultimately, law and gospel working together. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you only have the gospel preached to you without law, that actually just makes us lazy and comfortable in our own sins, and we end up being worse for it. And so we need the law and the gospel together in the proper order to do its thing, for the Spirit to really work within us. And so moving on, chapter two, Paul talks a lot about prayer. He actually commands for Timothy that everyone should pray for everyone. We should pray for our enemies. We should pray for those close to us. We should pray for those who don't know Jesus. It's a command to keep 
everyone, the whole world, if you will, in our prayers. And he really stresses how important it is for those involved in the church to be lifting up the people of God and just all people before him in prayer. Because we know that God listens to us and he acts in order to further his kingdom. And so um, we trust that God hears us when we pray and will answer us according to his will and timing. So it's not always going to be yes. He's not always going to grant us whatever we ask for, um, but he does promise to answer whatever we ask for, the best kind of father. Well, in the confirmation class we have been talking about, there's three answers. Yes, no, later. Um, and uh, what, what's always very interesting as a pastor, somebody will be praying for something, whether it be healing or someone, uh, you know, new job or whatever, and uh, uh, the answer will be yes, they get a new job, or the family member gets a new job. Wow, God answered my prayer. Well, a no is also an answer, you know, and while we may think we know what we truly need or desire, the reality is that only God really knows. And when he says no, he says no for a purpose. Now, that's easy for us to sit here and talk about it in a, in a classroom type setting in this podcast when we're dealing with it and God saying no to us, to something we're absolutely positive is the right thing to do. And then we think, where's God? Why isn't he listening? No, he's listening, but he's saying no. Uh, and it's, not easy for pastor or people to do that. I mean, I get dis- disappointed as an ex-person when God said, no, I don't think so. You're, it's a no. Uh, and, and so we need to realize that as well as we deal with the prayer, realizing that no is a legitimate answer. Later is a legitimate answer. The, it's not like yes is the only possible real answer from God. No, he can say no. He can say later. Mm-hmm. And going from there, the next chapter, chapter three, is a very relevant passage today for pretty much anyone who wants to work in the church, because Paul lists off some characteristics of those who desire to enter into the ministry. And he says this as a reminder that sort of people that represent the church on earth, people who are like pastors or um, DCEs or deaconesses or other church workers, they sort of live in this fishbowl where everybody around them is watching them. And so the life that um, these people live is a little different than some others because they are kind of special witnesses to Christ. It doesn't make them any better or worse than other people, but they are viewed by others differently. People come to these people in order to receive God's gifts. And that is a really, really big responsibility. And it's kind of a wonder that God would entrust sinners like us to steward his gifts like that. Um, and so he, he reminds Timothy that the life of a pastor, of a church worker is, is unique. It's special. It's a weighty responsibility. And so uh, we look over these characteristics a lot because the aptitude of a pastor is pretty crucial to his ministry. And a pastor really is very much of a public figure. Um, growing up in a pastor's home, my, my wife, Sarah, grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, Preacher's kids are often referred to as PKs. You know, we're both PKs. Uh, and what the, one of the things that that means is your, your life is always on display. Uh, it was as a child, it is as an adult. Having lived in Bismarck now for 33 years, uh, what's interesting is that uh, how often we'll be uh, out in public and people know you from a wedding, from funeral, not just at Zion, from the other things we do in the community. And... Uh, something be going on and yeah, you're, you're pastor Morris. Um, and, and then if there's something going on, like looking at weather or something, well, you have a, uh, 
closer connection to God than I do, or like you have a, a better track, like if my prayer is more valid or something, it, all, it often gives an opportunity to say, no, that's not true. Um, your prayer is just as important, just as valid as mine is. Uh, but it's, it's rather interesting living in the fishbowl uh, that I do here in Bismarck, you'd think Bismarck, 75,000, you know, nearing 100,000 people that, you know, you could kind of hide here. No, can't hide in Bismarck. And and that's a good thing in the sense that uh, my life as a Christian is always on display. Um, as I coach a high school soccer team, uh, the way I coach, the way I mentor, they all know what I do. I'm not preaching as if I'm from the pulpit, but my life is saying something. Uh, whereas a lot of Coaches they have will use some particular colorful language. Eh, they're not going to hear that out of me. I mean, I don't stop being Pastor Marcus just because I'm coaching at Legacy High School. And and really, he's reminding Timothy your whole life, wherever you are, that that is who you are. And so it's very important for the Christian to realize, while it's easy for me to say, yep, my life's on the display, everybody knows who I am, they know what I do, it's always an example. The reality is the world is looking at us Christians. Uh, it may not be necessarily always as evident as it is for like Timothy or for your pastor or whatever, uh, but the world's looking. And so if we say one thing and do another thing, they notice. And so if I would live the life uh, saying I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor, I got all this, and then when I'm on the soccer field, constantly spew foul language and all those kind of things, they would see the, uh, the disconnect between the two. And Paul's warning Timothy, there can't be a disconnect between what you are and who you are as, as uh, serving the church. And, and really, as Christians, while this is specifically written to a young pastor, it really speaks to all of us in the sense of how do we live our lives when we are, are out and about in the public? What does it say about our faith? And how do we then share that good news because of it? Paul also includes some instructions for people that he refers to as deacons. That might be a term that we're not as familiar with today. Deacons are servants of the church. They're people who serve the church, but they are not pastors. So there's a little bit of a distinction there. And so we'll say that there are very few deacons in our synod in the LCMS today, but there are many deaconesses. There are lots of women that go to the seminary in order to serve the church with their gifts and talents that God has blessed them with. Well, sometimes the terminology that we use, instead of using deacons, other church bodies do use the term deacon. Uh, you'll hear lay minister, uh, somebody that goes to the it's, uh, one of our colleges to get training in evangelism or youth work. I mean, director of Christian education is one term, but lay there we do use the term lay minister, which a lot of the lay ministers, especially those that are trained synodically, in some ways could be really called a deacon. However, we don't use that term. and doesn't discount the term, doesn't discount the, what the value of the, the work or ministry is. Uh, there's lots of ways that God uses people, men and women in his church. And uh, the terminology, we can get all wrapped up in the terminology, but clearly he uses the term uh, deacon here. Later, when, we, when we're talking about first, second, and third John as an example, I'll uh, talk about elder. And we do use the term in most of our churches of elder as the lay men who are on a board and they work in the ministry life of the congregation, they assist the pastor. But elder, as found in First, Second, and Third John, is really re referencing the pastor, not this, not these lay people that have this position. So again, 
what is the word we're using, what does the word mean, and how is it used is very important as we're reading through the scriptures here in our track to understand that while you may think you know what the word means, eh, sometimes it's better to look it up to make sure we know what the word is. And elder is one of those terms that we think we know what it means, but it means something totally different when we're reading the scriptures. It's talking about a pastor. It's not talking about the lay person that helps the acolytes and maybe does some of the ushering and makes sure the music and all those kind of things at the church. And that brings us to our last chapter that we're going to talk about from First Timothy today, which is chapter four, which is essentially a charge to resist false teachings and to remember why we do what we do, our hope in God. Paul reminds Timothy that we toil and strive and work really hard, yes, but that's because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. And so he reminds him that we have this joy and this hope in the Lord, who is alive and working in this world. And he also slips in just another reminder of, but we can fall away from the truth if we're not careful. So this is a big weighty responsibility. So really, really take it seriously and don't lose hope. Don't lose sight of what God is doing and how he's working in this world. Well, thanks for taking time with us today as we talked about the book of Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and started getting a look at First Timothy. Uh, we encourage you this week, as you do all this reading in our trek through the scriptures, to take a heart with the context of what the letters were, uh, who Paul was writing to, when he wrote them, why he wrote them, and uh, maybe even look up a little bit of a timeline to compare it back to uh, what was going on in Acts as we, as we did that. But we hope that this was helpful for you today, and we really encourage you in your reading this week on Trek Through the Scriptures and ask the Lord's blessings and be upon you as you continue your look into God's promises found in His Word. Lord's blessings this week. Thanks for joining us on our Trek Through the Scriptures this week. This podcast is a ministry of Zion Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. To contact us, learn more, or for more resources on our journey this year, please visit zionbismarck.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. This podcast was made possible by a grant from Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We thank them for their support. Please join me in prayer as we begin our new week. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirits, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time as we continue our exploration of God's story in the scriptures. God bless your reading this week.